This is Brain Matters, the podcast where we explore the brain with the scientists who study it. Here's today's host, Anthony Lacanina. Hey everyone out there, you're listening to Brain Matters. I'm Anthony Lacanina. In today's episode, we are going to be discussing a topic that has had an interesting and controversial history. To set the stage, I'd like to start off by reading a quote from the famous neuroscientist Santiago Ramon y Cajal regarding the possibility of newborn neurons in the adult brain. Once the development was ended, the founts of growth and regeneration of the axons and dendrites dried up irrevocably. In the adult centers, the nerve paths are something fixed, ended, and immutable. Everything may die. Nothing may be regenerated. And it's with those final words, everything may die, nothing may be regenerated, that best captures a long-standing dogma in neuroscience, which is that once we reach adulthood, the brain lacks the capacity to create any additional brain cells. Their only true fate in life is death. (laughs) Sorry, that got kind of heavy there. So, The idea that adults lack the ability to create newborn neurons, which is known as neurogenesis, survived almost the entire 20th century. However, with evidence that first emerged in the 60s and was later expanded upon in the 90s, this dogma has finally collapsed, and modern neuroscientists now agree that particular regions of the adult brain maintain the ability to create newborn cells throughout its life. But one gigantic question has yet to be definitively answered. Why? What exactly are those newborn neurons good for? Well, today's guest is Dr. Amelia Aish, and she has been working towards an answer to this question. Dr. Aish is a neuroscientist at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center at Dallas, and has been investigating the functional role and the environmental factors that regulate neurogenesis. In particular, Dr. Aish has contributed significantly to the interesting connection between adult neurogenesis and psychiatric disorders. In the interview, we spoke more about some of the reasons why the brain might want to make new neurons as an adult, about some of the tools Dr. Aish has developed to manipulate these cells, and about the difficulties of convincing your parents that studying drugs is actually worthwhile. Enjoy. Can you tell us about... Are we recording? We yeah, are. Okay. We've been doing this whole thing, but we just this <laughs> okay. will be for supplemental. So I want to start, what are the big questions that you're asking in your lab right now? And what is the like, sort of fundamental basis for the kinds of science that you do? The big questions that we ask in my lab right now, there are actually two, and then there are other ones around it. What are new neurons good for? And what is good for neurogenesis? So if those new neurons are really good... How do we get more of them? Okay. So those are two questions are so important that we've had it put on our lab t-shirts one year in Latin even. Which would be... Oh, I don't remember. (laughs) I was informed by one of my Latin scholar students later, though, that I got it wrong. (laughs) No. But I don't think anyone else will know. It was, what are new neurons for? What are they... What are new neurons good for? Dangling preposition. Yes. Mm -hmm. Because I'm a scientist, not an English... (laughs) 
major. And then what is good for new neurons? Okay. I'm gonna, let's take one step back because when I was young, I learned that we just have a certain population of neurons and when we're born and that I can only lose them. And I was really depressed at that when I heard this and I was like, I need to be very careful. This is a myth. In part, but I want to ask you, Anthony, reach back into your childhood. Yeah. Were you <laughs> at all told that, for example, if you sneezed or did drugs or stayed up too late that you would um, yeah. lose new neurons? They told me, I, they frightened me about everything. Yeah. 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 Especially the don't do drugs. Exactly. Right. So we now know that humans make new neurons throughout life. There was a seminal study in the late 1990s by a wonderful but since deceased scientist, Peter Erickson, where he showed that humans, including quite old humans, make new neurons in their brain throughout their life. Hmm. And in the most recent years, there's been a series of astounding, I would say, studies from Jonas Friesen in Sweden, I believe he's at the Karolinska, where he used the brains of humans that were in utero during the time of the atomic bombs and use that tissue to support and expand that initial work that indeed humans do have new neurons in their brains throughout life. Was this suspected in humans first or what gave us the first idea that, wait a second, maybe we are making new neurons throughout our entire lifetime? Yes. The fantastic Joseph Altman. In the late 50s, early 60s, he was on to this. He was doing a lot of work with mammalian development, and he looked in a variety of species, but what they might call lower species, mice and dogs, and looked, and rats, and found new neurons there. And it was actually pretty high profile. It got in journal, the journal Science. Which you may have heard of. A little bit. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah, I have. Yeah. Capital S. <laughs> Science. Not and, the lowercase one. Yeah, not the lowercase one. Um, and when that work came out, you'd think everybody would have jumped on it. But I think one of the key reasons why it took so long, it took really until the 90s for Heather Cameron, Liz Gould, working with Bruce McEwen, and Rusty Gage to then advance the field to say, oh, new neurons actually are made in mice and rats. It took that massive gap because I think primarily because of the way we were detecting new neurons. Which was how, yeah. Yeah, so Joseph Altman, in his day, he was using good old radioactivity, Mm -hmm. tritiated thymidine, for example, which cells think looks an awful lot like a building block of DNA. So when you inject it into an animal... The dividing cells take it up, and then you have to do a laborious process of seeing which cells actually have that uh, those dividing silver grains in it. Basically, you're dipping brain tissue in film to put liquid emulsion on it, and that was really labor-intensive, and it only got maybe the top little bit of, of brain sections. It didn't get very deep. And you also couldn't quite tell if they were neurons back then. People sort of told things were neurons by their shape, their shape of their nuclei or shape of the cells. And then this amazing thing happened called antibodies. (laughs) 
making monoclonal antibodies just made everything possible. And being able to utilize bromodeoxyuridine. You can hear the uridine, any of you uh, DNA fans out there, know that <laughs> that, uh, that beer to you looks, and again, a lot like a building block of DNA. And it gets taken up into those cells, and people then used antibodies against beer to you to look for it. So this is a great example of technology, I think, forcing a lull in a really hot topic. There was a very interesting interlude. Michael Kaplan tried to follow up on the work of Joseph Altman and did some really interesting work, but could not get it funded. So he actually dropped out of science and I think just went on with his, uh, his, he was a physician. He went on with his, his practice, his private practice. And he wrote a really interesting perspective. I believe it was in Trends in Pharmacological Science a couple of years ago about, wow, what it's like to see where all grant reviewers told him, this is ridiculous. You are chasing a rainbow and there's no <laughs> leprechauns or gold there, kid. And he, he, that's not quoted from his article. Okay. And <laughs> Darn it. he, he, uh, I think that's great that he gets to see in his that lifetime. redemption. Yes. Yeah. It's really <laughs> remarkable. But Joseph Altman is still, and his wife, Shirley Bayer are still alive. And, uh, I'm sure they're happy too. It, it's, it's a remarkable, um, journey that the field has taken in that regard that's i just a, a small aside i think that's interesting where you know when it's it's always amazing when a uh, idea gets shut off for a long period of time and then it takes just you know you know a lot of work from a lot of other people to mm -hmm. sort of clear the playing field and the feeling must be amazing yeah. from that <laughs> yeah. from that perspective yeah yeah and i i credit a lot of the people who thought of oh people are using brdu in dividing cells. Let's try that in vivo. Uh, mm. It's those people who are thinking not not outside the box. They're thinking outside the journal, <laughs> right? They're thinking outside their field. They go read the other journals, which is why I tell my students to like, you know, always make friends who are in different fields. Everybody should have an immunologist friend, <laughs> right? Everyone out there, yeah. I just... think you should. You know, immunologists are extremely handy to know. Um, you know, get reach outside of neuroscience. It's always good to have like a baker and a, a baker. Yeah. Um, absolutely. A candlestick maker, right? <laughs> that would be good. Yeah. Do you, do you actually encourage your baking? students? No, no, not just not baking. baking, just having a, like you said, a, a diverse kind of like crew to just consult and talk with. Uh, oh, I wish I had such flexibility. You need a, wait, wait, it's like, in the, uh, like the Justice League. You need just like everyone needs their own <laughs> panel. <laughs> That would be great. Well, what I think now, though, we do have a really, the, the group of people we have in the lab is quite diverse. We have somebody who their background, she was a retina expert, retina development. We have a chemist who really now is a full-fledged neuroscientist, card carrying. If he's listening, <laughs> get your card out, Phil. Uh, so we have a person who did, you know, was a zoology major. So they, coming at from all different angles, I think is a very, it is useful. But that's one of the fun things about science is that mm -hmm. everybody comes to where they are from such a different trajectory. And then you all hold hands. Yeah. Um, and discover things. <laughs> it's beautiful, right? It is. <laughs> Actually, it is. Let's go from, okay, we got to the, uh, we now have the basis that there 
are these newborn cells in the brain. Let's in get to your brain, in even, my, Anthony. In, even in mine? Yes, and in Lauren, the producer's brain. I'll yes. believe you, but we, don't, yes. we haven't tested that, but that's true. I'll, ta- I'll take your word for it. Let's ask question one of your big thing. Yeah. What do you think they are good for? What are new? Was that one or was that two? Is that I forget. One what of the are two. New, yeah, yeah, that's number one. What are they good for? Yeah, why? What's their functional thing? Do we just have dividing cells in the brain just because mm-hmm. the brain's too lazy to stop dividing? <laughs> right? It's just inertia. I think many people, if you take all their literature together, the current hypothesis is, is that new neurons, particularly in the hippocampus, are involved in learning and memory, mood regulation, response to stress. I would like to say it's also involved with uh, regulating addictive-like behaviors, reward-based behaviors, but particularly in times of stress, not necessarily baseline. So if you knock out new neurons in an animal, we don't necessarily notice something overt about the animal. We maybe have to push it a little bit or put it in a, frankly, a real world situation rather than a strictly artificial situation to see that. So they seem to really be important under these like trying stressful times. I like that trying times. The trying times, times, right? Um, Do you think these, this pool of new neurons act as um, a way, sort of a physiological buffer just in case things, Mm. things start going bad? You need to be adaptive, is that the idea? Right on. Right on, okay. Not like right on, but you know, yeah. yes, exactly. That's, okay. In fact, there was an article by a terrific neuroscientist named Gerd Kemperman that he coined the term the neurogenesis reserve hypothesis. This idea that maybe you need you know, a little backup help just mm-hmm. in case. Because why would we make them all the time? Like, these new neurons, when they are made, they take a while to grow up and to be involved in circuitry and to receive connections and to uh, make connections. Why would the brain put that much energy into something that divides and divides, but you're not going to need it for a while, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's peculiar. And... His concept was that maybe you need an ongoing, if I remember his concept correctly, that you need this ongoing pool that you could select some from and, oh, I'm going to keep these because I'm going to need them. I'm going to need to remember something. Or, oh, I'm going to let all these go. But it's a remarkable expenditure of energy on the brain's part, which is where I think another interesting aspect of neurogenesis, which I have nothing to do with, but I read a lot, is the evolutionary perspective of it. All, you know, all mammals, except a few species of bats, uh, make, I know, make mm. new neurons. But if you look, if you look down, uh, throughout the evolutionary tree, there are, you can learn a lot about how animals make new neurons, in what areas they make it, what do they use it for. And so I think the people who study some of those other species are not getting the credit they're due. So you should get like a zebrafish neurogenesis person in uh, this chair. Do you know who's sitting in this chair right here? Who's sitting in that chair? Um, somebody who looked at frog neurogenesis in my first, that get was my first out. project. So yeah, 
I can tell you the frogs have it everywhere, actually. They have newborn neurons. You know this, I'm sure, if you look like down the tree. Yeah, yeah. The It seems to, the number of brain regions increases. And fish, frogs, and um, I don't, I haven't looked at reptiles, but mm-hmm. uh, I think they have neurogenesis all mm-hmm. over. Mm-hmm. And we don't know why yeah. do you have all these yeah. newborn neurons? Right. And why did we lose them as right. in mammals? Right. In mammals, it's very specific. Right. And does the neural mechanism of how they go through the stages of neurogenesis, how they grow up from a stem cell to a neuron. Is that different in the different species? Yeah. It um, seems like, cause they have it everywhere. It's like, that's a, that would be a huge amount right. of, of energy. And yes. the, the one question I want to ask is this seems counterintuitive there. I think there's two I, like things that jumped out at me when I first heard about, you know, there, somebody told me you have newborn neurons all the time. And the first thing that came to my mind was maybe they're, you, you know, I'm always making new memories. Maybe they're just, mm-hmm. that's where a new memory, mm-hmm. the little neuron comes and bloop, and then that's mm-hmm. the new fact of the day mm-hmm. uh, got integrated. Mm-hmm. But then the other thing that started, I started wondering was, wait a second, if there's all these newborn neurons coming in, aren't they going to disrupt? How do they know mm-hmm. to not like mess up the memory mm-hmm. I had from yesterday? Right, right. So or this is a, didn't you ask yourself, Anthony, why do I not have brain coming out my ears? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, right? Our brain is only so big. Yeah. Yeah. People think deeply about that subject. One person I have heard give a, a very um, both informative and also very charming talk about this is <laughs> Pashka Rakish at Yale, who was a, a, a very good mentor to me in my, my, uh, when I was a postdoc at Yale. And he talks about having, you know, a cell for, you know, your grandmother, yeah. you know, for his particular grandmother. And he has this <laughs> wonderful phrases that he uses for that. Well, we, we now know from learning and memory that it, it's rare that a memory is in one cell. I won't yeah. say never, but it's rare that it's in one cell or in one location. And it does appear that neurogenesis decreases with age. So it's highest when we're youngest. And that's true for almost all mammals that have been studied, including humans. And that these neurons, the new neurons learn to play nicely with others. So, they learn to integrate into the circuitry. I mean, it's actually remarkable when you think about it. I call them new neurons. They're like baby neurons in a jungle in this. <laughs> and one of my students, Nate DeCarolis, talked about going on a stem cell safari <laughs> because you'd be in this, you're in this jungle of adult cells. What in the world, what business do stem cells have being there? It makes sense during development when they're all doing the same thing. All your neighbors are going out and getting the fancy sneakers and dividing and, you know, expressing F receptors. Yeah, you have all these brains. old guys and these young ones just keep coming up. Hey, what's going on? Exactly. But in the Trying adult, to hang out, yeah. in the adult, to have that, you'd think there'd be a really intense either competition. Who's going to die? Because there's not room for everybody. Mm-hmm. Studies suggest that the hippocampus does not, the hippocampus, the area where these new neurons are, doesn't necessarily get that much bigger with age, but the studies say it either stays the same size or it gets maybe slightly bigger. Mm-hmm. So if that's the case, what's going on? You've got new neurons going down, but you also have a lot of those new ones die. Mm-hmm. They yeah. never make it. So they're just, they're like the troops running yeah, down the exactly. Omaha they're like lemmings. Beach. Yeah, lemmings going over the cliff. Oh, no. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and th- but they're there. Light a candle at night for all my dead neurons that didn't exactly. make it today. <laughs> exactly, but on the flip side, maybe they were supposed to die. And if you put, if you kept too many of them, 
Maybe like you said, there would be a fancier word would be interference, but there might be discord. The older and the younger generation not getting around long too well. <laughs> Ideally, the younger ones grow up, they learn how to integrate, but you, we still don't fully understand at what point do those young ones, the adult generated ones, become indistinguishable from the embryonic generated ones. Can you see the quotes I'm making? Yeah. Um, and from the embryonic generated ones, do they sort of fade into the distance and then you can never tell them apart? Or is an adult generated one always sort of different? Do they have slightly different projections or slightly different inputs? There's some terrific EM work done by that. Tony and Gage have done some great work on that, but we still don't get it. And I still think it's a, it's a very big mystery why the brain puts up with this. <laughs> why? And especially this region that has such intense um, responsivity to stress and so well known for a, a role in learning and memory, how these new cells can get in there without causing an imbalance or a discord. Mm -hmm. You study, uh, you focus mainly on right mood regulation and also like addictive behaviors in these yes. new neurons. Could you just tell a little bit about like your contribution to the field? Yes. And you know what, you know, what you have sort of like put into the pot of under trying to understand yes. these. The pot that yeah. is being mixed. Yeah. So what I have put into the pot, to the potluck of the neurogenesis party, is when I was a graduate student, when I was a postdoc, excuse me, I was very fortunate to be involved with a collaboration with Ron Duman's lab. And Jessica Malberg was the lead author, and then Eric Nessler was my postdoc advisor, looking at how antidepressants, like Prozac, fluoxetine, increase the number of new neurons. Correlative study, but highly influential. Really started um, the ball rolling on how thinking about new neurons in regards to mood disorders. Then my own work as a postdoc was looking at opiates, either morphine given subcutaneously or heroin self-administration, both in rats, and how that decreased neurogenesis. So now we have a... Uh, a, a seesaw. Antidepressants, people think of that, at least they thought of that, as good, and that increased neurogenesis. And opiates, those are drugs. Those must be bad. Those decreased neurogenesis. So that started this in my brain. Well, is that correlation real? Is that useful? And what does it mean? What does it functionally mean? I also, during my postdoc time, found something I hated and wanted to develop a tool so that I would never have to do it again. And that was to count BRDU labeled cells. These BR are the new, yeah, the newly divided cells, right? Yes. So BRDU, this thing that looks like the building block of DNA, you give it to an animal, even uh, an intraperitoneal injection, it will label any dividing cell in the body. So their skin would have it all. Their Anything skin that's, would have you know. it, yeah. Now, their skin wouldn't have obvious lesions or yeah, anything of it, unless you give really high doses. But <laughs> think about it. I've given something to an animal to label dividing cells, and I am then going to use an antibody to label those cells. Well, that cell's DNA now has BRDU in it. That must not be normal, <laughs> right? And there were some great developmental studies that showed if you gave high doses of BRDU or repeated doses of BRDU, that's not good. 
those cells don't like it. So I felt like that was bad and pointless. And I have changed my mind since. But at the time, that drove me to think of how could we both label these cells in a different way and how could we manipulate them? Because I was tired of just seeing, does X change neurogenesis or just Y change neurogenesis? So along with uh, some help from a colleague of my time, my at, at the time, Ralph DeLeon and a, another uh, resident slash postdoc, Bob Beach, who was terrific, we put together this idea that we would use a stem cell gene to drive a fluorescent reporter, essentially. And we split those into two different type of mice and we made one type of the mice. And I made those mice when I moved to, to Dallas with wonderful help of uh, two terrific postdocs, Chitra Mandiam and Diane Lagasse. Hi, Chitra. Hi, Diane. You're great. And we made this mouse where you could inducibly fluorescently label stem cells and all their progeny. So now you got to look mm. at fluorescent cells, which is awesome, Always. instead of, you know, just bright field. And even more importantly, Anthony, we got to, we could now ask, what are the molecular controls of neurogenesis? Mm. We know cells start out as stem cells, and then they become sort of dividing progenitors, and then immature, young and excitable uh neurons and then fully mature neurons, what are the molecules that control that? We know some of that in development. We know almost nothing about it in the, in the adult. And this mouse enabled us to knock out certain genes only in stem cells and their progeny. And it was a fantastic tool. And I'm really thankful not only for all the people that helped me make it, but also for all the labs that use it now. We do have, I think, over a hundred labs have the mice now, and wow. they are available at Jackson Lab. And there are several other people that have made similar mouse lines. And what we're learning is that it's always more complicated. So we use this gene Nestin to make our Nestin CreERT2 fancy inducible reporter mm -hmm. line. Other people have made Nestin CreERT2s, and theirs are slightly different expression than ours. And so what we're learning is it's not the genes that tell us that are controlling this. It's it's the gene and how much of the gene you have in there, so the upstream and downstream enhancers. And it's also dependent on uh, what kind of reporter you use. You know, these biogenic systems, sometimes if you use a different reporter mouse, you can get a different effect. So we, It's always more complicated. It's always more complicated. That means anyone who's listening who wants to be a scientist can be a scientist because there always will be more jobs. Yay. And I'm not saying there'll be more grants, <laughs> but there always will be jobs. And I think it's really exciting to have so many different questions asked with those mice that, and I want to stress again, that was something I hated doing and I felt was a major fault of the field mm -hmm. using BRDU. I just hated it. I made the mouse. I still use BRDU because like a young cell, I have grown up and seen the wisdom of the ways of my elders that BRDU serves as purpose, an important purpose. And if you use a small amount of BRDU, it's not tetragenic or toxic to the cell. So the thing that pushed me away, that made me a rebel, brought me back to using BRDU. All tools serve a purpose. It's a beautiful story. It, I, 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 I'm glad it touched your heart. It did. <laughs> uh, 
Can you tell us how you got into studying neurogenesis and was what's your story of how, you know, why you wanted to become a scientist? I spent much of my life trying not to be a scientist. My father is a fantastic organometallic synthesis chemist. He is currently, as of this date in 2014, he is 83 years old. He will be 84 this year. And he still runs a lab. <laughs> he has more papers and more high quality papers than I would ever have in my life known. <laughs> but what I learned from him is that, and my mother, who is another amazing person, uh, she was uh, an RN and then a geriatric nurse practitioner, that you had to love what you did. What doesn't matter what you do, just go out and love what you did. And I thought this is going to be great, but I'm never going to become a chemist because I don't know what my dad is talking about. And in college, he wouldn't I, tell you about stories at dinner time. Oh about... no! Well, I mean, he would tell me stories about that, but he wouldn't tell me, for example, when I called him. And I'm saying this with all love, Dad. He wouldn't tell me when I called him. I was at college, and I called him. And I was, Dad, I don't understand this aldehyde ketone thing, and he was like. You have to learn this yourself. The only way you're going to pass this. And Give me I, a break, Dad. I was like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> so I thought, I am not going to become a chemist. But I actually, when I think about it now, I took chemistry my senior year in college, way after all my friends. And the reason I was taking chemistry is because I had gotten the neuroscience bug the year before. I was in psychology and I thought, oh, I'm going to go do psychology and I'll do like neuropsychology because I thought that was interesting and a great way to help people. As you might tell, I'm a little bit of an extrovert. Mm -hmm. And so I thought I could help people and talk to them. But I realized that psychology didn't give me a mechanistic basis for what was happening. Junior year, I somehow wheedled my way into a senior research seminar. I think that had all seniors except for me being pushy. And it was called The Biological Basis of Drugs of Abuse. And I, when I read the course description, I was like, I am going to get into that class or I'm going to drop out of school. <laughs> and I got into the class. And I wrote a, I had to write a term paper on endorphins, which just recently I went home and I found in my parents' thing. I, it's one of the few things I saved. <laughs> and I thought, this is it. This is what I want. I want to figure out how you connect brain to behavior. It's not just the behavior, it's how you get from the brain to the behavior. So it was a little too late to become a biology major. Yale didn't have a neuroscience major at the time. In fact, I still think they do not have an undergraduate neuroscience major. And Yale, you should fix that. <laughs> so they, I was a psychology major and I did a biology track. And so I took as many of these biology classes as I could. And I remember the next class that was like in my brain was the neurobiology class that Hyde Kashishian taught, and I think he still teaches. And we got to dissect sheep brains, and I was over the moon. I I mean, the, the TA could see how, like, ecstatic I was. Kate Melia, I still remember her name. I was like, this is the most amazing thing I've ever done. I mean, it was great to look at flies and their, 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 their uh, place fields. That's great. But I really... To see the sheep brain and to hold the sheep brain and dissect it, I it looked so much like a mini human brain that it, I was literally transported. So she let me take the brain home. <laughs> and so I took the brain home and I put it in Tupperware. And 
I then promptly got really sick and had to go to like student health. I had the worst flu ever. I was out for like a week, week and a half. And when I came back, you would not believe how bad my room smelled <laughs> because the Tupperware had nothing else in it. And the brain obviously had been fixed, but it was just perfuming my room with paraformaldehyde. So I had to throw that brain out, which I wish I hadn't, but it didn't look good anymore. But I knew, at, you know, both you take that biological basis of drugs of abuse and that seeing the brain, I was committed. And that's what got me into that darn organic chemistry class <laughs> and made me grovel on the phone to my father and have him turn me down for help. And, uh, you know, at the time, there were not that many neuroscience graduate programs. So I went to the coolest sounding one, which was actually pretty hip at the time. Uh, UC Irvine had a psycho bio, you know, like um, Talking Heads, Psycho Killer. Yeah. Qu'est-ce que say? This is Psycho Bio. Yeah. They've since changed. Was that right them. around the time? Wait, it was right yet. around the time, right mm -hmm. before you were born, I mm -hmm. believe. Maybe. And I went there, and it was a phenomenal interdisciplinary training with a lot of emphasis on learning and memory, and got into neurotoxicity of drugs of abuse, how they how they act on certain brain cells and behavior, and then shifted from there into more. Okay, how do drugs of abuse really act to make people addicted. And that's when I did work with uh, John Marshall was my phenomenal graduate student advisor. And then postdoc was with Eric Nessler, who uh, both of them to this day are really supportive. So that was, I just, you know, they say that sometimes you get it, like you, a thing happens. It happened with me. And I, once I heard about that drugs of abuse, brain connecting to behavior, it was all over. <laughs> At my wedding, many years later, my father told a fantastic story about when I called home and said, I figured out what I'm going to do. I'm going to study the brain and I'm going to learn how drugs work. My parents, this is how great they are, did not tell me at the time, but they were mortified. <laughs> they thought I was some um, druggie. Or I don't know if they thought I was a druggie, but they thought I was, yeah, why would I study this? And it was only later when they realized, oh, people fund this sort of work. You weren't just, you know, at a rock concert, just yes. like, just trying to see what the drugs do. Dude, do I totally want to see, like, what happens in my synapses. They yes. walk in and see you working in a lab, and they're like, oh. Yes, yes. So I thank goodness that, you know, my undergraduate, my graduate, and my postdoc hat gave me, made me a, um, a, a pure woman. Because otherwise, in my parents' eyes, I would have been some, uh, who knows what, some dilly-dally, PhD, addiction, drug-oriented, you know, black sheep. <laughs> but thank goodness. I mean, I think when they finally said, oh, there's a National Institute on Drug Abuse. Oh, okay, she's not making this up. <laughs> so that, uh, so thank you, Nida for making my parents talk to me again. <laughs> and, and really for funding, in all seriousness, terrific work. I mean, I think the kind of work that NIDA does is really groundbreaking. Most addictions do start, they have some early trigger that starts in adolescence. Some sequelae happens. And even if we don't know what it is yet, so they are focusing, they're putting a lot of their money into thinking about early childhood, early life. Why is it that some people exposed to the same atmosphere, the same peer pressures. Why do some go on to be addicted and some not? And they're also thinking about, you know, really creatively uh, about addiction 
as it's certainly not a character flaw. It's not an issue of willpower. It is abnormal processing and in one way of thinking about it, abnormal learning and memory. So if you understand learning and memory normally, then maybe we can figure out what abnormal learning and memory is and how to, how to break that cycle. And that is why I am, I'm convinced that the work we do, even though we think about psychiatric disorders like mood disorders or uh, addiction and in other cases, neurodegenerative disorders, why that work is still, I think, relevant to normal brains, whatever normal is. <laughs> I know that I'm definitely not that. So you're, I can't, you're not I can't normal? talk about that. Yeah, you're not sorry. normal. No. Okay. You're Abby normal. <laughs> sure. <laughs> the final question I just have is what do you enjoy most about your work and just being a scientist? Yeah. So the thing I enjoy most about my work, and I say this with all seriousness, throughout my entire career, since I started, since I committed to that in, what was that? No, it must have been 1988 is doing this podcast. <laughs> Yes. No. <laughs> Can I give a serious answer now? Yeah, sure. Um, I, th I think it's frankly, it's working with students. I'm at a medical center. I don't have undergraduates. Uh, that makes it sound like you would own them, but I don't get the opportunity <laughs> to work with undergraduates much. But I do have fantastic technicians, postdocs, graduate students, and in the summer, sometimes high school students and undergraduates. So even the technicians, I consider them students. Heck, sometimes even other faculty, you know, we're students for each other. We're learning from each other. Having that, that ability to talk to another person, figure out what they know, what they don't know, what their strengths and weaknesses are, and for some graduate students, what the carrot and what the stick is. <laughs> but figuring that out and then as a team, because it's never just me telling them what to do, but as a team, Figuring out how to get from we where we are now to where we want to go and to test a hypothesis is awesome. It's just, yeah, it's awesome. And my father is going to criticize me when he hears this for using the word awesome. Because that's not a truly awe-inspiring thing, but to me it is, Dad. <laughs> so there. I agree with you so well. Yeah. I'll have to take it up with him. Amelia, okay. thank you so yeah. much for being here. It was wonderful to talk to you. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you, Producer Lauren. I'm sure you don't get enough credit. Lauren does all the work, so. She does all the work. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. All right. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this episode of Brain Matters. We'd like to thank today's guests for joining us and you for listening. For more information about the science you heard today, please visit us at brainpodcast.com. See you next time on Brain Matters.